The reading is from Titus chapter 2 and it's verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come to you tonight with all the issues and the problems and the situations and circumstances of our lives. You know us through and through. And Father, we thank you because you know us. You know our lives. You know our burdens. You know the things that we're preoccupied with. You know the sins in our lives. And we praise you, Father. You come to us with grace. And we pray that you'd speak to us tonight. Amen. Let me um, ask you, are you a discouraged Christian? What do I mean by that? I mean that you theoretically know Jesus. You come to church. You know what Jesus has done for you. And you could probably articulate that very clearly and powerfully in some ways. But generally, you feel that your Father in Heaven is far away. Jesus did some stuff 2,000 years ago, but it was kind of back then. It's not for you today. You know that you should pray, and you know that you should read the Bible, but it's, it feels like climbing up a mountain whenever you get down to pray or you, you read the Bible for yourself. You're here in church today, but it feels like you're gathered with a load of weirdos you don't really have anything in common with. You're here, but you feel isolated and different and disconnected. You feel, you might feel apathetic. You might feel unmotivated. You might be waking up feeling badly depressed, and it might just be a struggle just to get out of bed. You may feel stressed and worried about work. Your head might be full of memories that you just can't get out of your head. You are having nightmares. You are weary. Maybe you feel annoyed and right on the edge of church tonight. Maybe you're so discouraged that you can't help but discourage everyone else and be critical of everything because you yourself feel so discouraged. Maybe you're just disappointed. Are you a discouraged Christian tonight? The fact is that all of us come into this Uh, at different points in our lives, in different situations in our lives. And sometimes we can end up spending a long time in this place of being a discouraged believer. Sometimes we never really move beyond it. Churches can live in a culture of discouragement for years. But this this isn't what the Christian life is meant to be. It's not meant to be like that. If you feel discouraged today, There is good news. There is good news. We talk about good news, don't we? We talk about the gospel, the good news. There is good news for you. And this passage that we've looked at now, that we've just had read to us, is God's word to you. It is God's encouragement 
into the middle of your life. The Lord has come tonight to encourage you. And this passage is overflowing with encouragement. It is bursting with blessing. Because here we get an amazing picture of what God has done. Verses 11 to 14 are actually, in the original Greek, one sentence. Now, English can't handle sentences like that, so it kind of breaks it up a bit. But, but, but Greek can. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is that because it's one sentence, main, it, it means that there is, it is basically saying one thing. There's one, one point to this, to this sentence. It is all about what God has done and will do. And God has done and will do amazing things for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Maybe you're visiting here tonight and you've, you've never really thought about that before. God has done something or will do something. It might be that for you, God is a bit like a planet in the solar system. It's kind of out there, somewhere, floating, hanging in space, but it doesn't really make any difference to my life. You know, the planet Jupiter popped out of existence, I wouldn't cry. It wouldn't bother me all that much. And it may be that God feels a bit like that for you. But we're told here that God has done something and will do something. These verses are brimming with what God has done and will do. And what we see here is very simple. It's that God is a very active saviour. He's a saviour. The, the, the book of Titus presents to us a very clear picture of God. He is the saviour. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he is the saviour. Chapter 2, verse 10. Last week we looked at how um, the uh, the slaves were to make the teaching of God, our saviour, attractive. Here in verse 13, chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 6, which you'll look at next week, God is the saviour. And this sentence from verses 11 to 14 is really all about this fact and its implications for our lives. God is a saviour. We live in the light of God's incredible salvation. And so, you see, we start tonight, we start every day with an incredible encouragement. God is a saviour. Now, this letter to Titus was written by Paul to his lieutenant Titus. And Titus was, was called to sort out the churches in Crete, uh, and, to, and to sort out a whole number of issues to teach and train the people. And there's a big problem with corrupt teaching and corrupt living that's come into the church. And um, you can read about it as you, as you read through the letter. He, he, Paul talks about how people's consciences have become messed up and seared. They're, they're living in terrible ways. They're no, they're no different from the world around them. Their lives are out of control. They've got bad relationships. And here in chapter 2, we looked at this last week, we see how Paul is, is teaching on how we're to live differently. How to, how to live distinctly. We looked at the first bit, bit of this chapter last week, had all kinds of lifestyle issues and commands. But this verse, these verses that we're looking at here, are really the motivation and the drive behind everything we were looking at last week. All those commands are predicated upon these verses. So the motivation that drives it, it comes from here. And the whole point of this, this, these verses here that we're looking at is that we live out of encouragement, out of an encouraging God. We live out of salvation. We are driven by the big blessings that God has given us. That is where the Christian life starts. It doesn't start with what I do, but with what God has done. And we're going to look at two things you can see on the sheets, that we live our lives in the light of God's grace in the past, 
and we live our lives in the light of God's glory coming in the future. So let's look at these two things. We live in light of God's grace in the past. Verse 11, how does it start? It starts with the fact that the grace of God has appeared. That is an amazing sentence. And of course, it's talking about Jesus, the coming of Jesus and his life and how he died for our sins and how he's risen from the dead and he's exalted. But what a great way of describing what Jesus has done. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. The grace of God is God's absolute, infinite blessing given to everyone who deserves the opposite. God's infinite, absolute blessing given to people who deserve the opposite. So tonight, this is my suggestion for your interior decoration, that we put up some blue neon lights on the sides of the walls here that say, the grace of God has appeared. And they're flashing the whole time. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Keep saying that to yourself tonight. The grace of God has appeared. As you go home tonight on the tube, on the bus, say to yourself, the grace of God has appeared. Let that be the banner over your life today. The grace of God has appeared. It doesn't matter what's going on for you at the moment. It doesn't matter how you feel, actually. It doesn't even matter what your experiences are now, today, or in the past. The grace of God has appeared. And that is in the past tense. Actually, it's the perfect tense. That God has sent his grace. We are not waiting for it to appear. We're not hoping for it to appear. We're not asking for it to appear. It has appeared. And so we are living in the light of something that has already happened. Something that has already come. And notice this word appeared. It says appeared, doesn't it? It's not just an idea. It's not just a parable or a poem. It's not, a, it's not, a, a, it's not pie in the sky. It's not a vague wish. It's not sentimentality. But the grace of God has really come and it has showed itself in the real world in real time in a real human being who lived amongst us. And he did real things, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived and he died and it's all about God's grace for us. Do you believe that tonight? And this grace, we're told, is to all men. That doesn't mean it's to every single person, but it means it's to all kinds of people. Whoever you are tonight, whatever you've been up to, whatever kind of behavior has been expressed in your life, when you come to Jesus as your Savior, you get this grace. This grace is given to you. And being a Christian is all about living out of grace. Living out of this fact that grace has appeared. See, when you're discouraged, you live with the uncomfortable feeling that God is just waiting to get you in some way. That he's got some huge cosmic list and he's ticking off on this list what you have done and what you haven't done. You feel that God has retreated from you and you are left to fend for yourself like some cosmic orphan in the universe, alone, having to look after yourself. You're separated from his love and from his kindness and somehow you've just got to try and make it Make your way back home through the universe to God. Inside you can feel like a clock that's slowly winding down, full of anxieties and fears. You become a discouraged Christian. But hear the encouragement from these verses. That is not your situation. The grace of God has appeared. Let me help you with an analogy. I want you to think of Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, I think. Now he has 29 and 12 zeros, dollars. I don't know how, many, how much that is, whether that's billions or, what, or what, what it is. It's a lot of money. 29 and 12 zeros. Imagine that in your head. He has earned since his birth an average of 22 pounds per heartbeat. 
he earns £695,000 an hour, which is a good rate, I hear. Now, imagine, imagine that Bill Gates decided to become your personal saviour. And what he was going to do, he was going to use all his wealth to solve all the problems, all the debts, all the issues in your life, to bless you. And his one goal was to show you personally as much kindness as he could. And all his wealth and power would be focused on doing you good and bringing you blessing. That would be pretty good, wouldn't it? But there's a problem. The problem is this. The Bill Gates' wealth is limited. 29 and 12 zeros. And he can only do it for this life. And the clock is ticking. Now you you see where I'm going with this, don't you? You see, God's grace through Jesus means that all of his wealth is focused on bringing you blessing. It is infinite. And he, he can do good to you forever. It's not limited to this life. See, do we really understand what, what this says when it says the grace of God has appeared? It is mind-blowing, isn't it? God has not got Bill Gates's limitations. God's wealth is limitless. And this grace that has appeared is about God pouring blessing and kindness and goodness into your life forever. See, when you know this grace, not in just kind of some abstract way, not just as a kind of concept or a theological idea, but when you know this grace, when you get a sense of it, it changes you, it transforms you. And we read here that it teaches and trains. Now that is very logical, isn't it? Because if Bill Gates had decided to use all his 29-12-0 money to bless you, it would change your life, wouldn't it? You'd move out of your dingy flat with a mold growing up the wall. You'd get a nice pair of jeans, wouldn't you? You'd get a fancy haircut, I assume. At least most of us would. How <laughs> Think how much more God's grace will change your life. If, that, if, if Bill Gates' wealth, which is limited and only for this life, will change your life, how much more will a sense of God's grace change how you live? Grace is always changing us. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, he said this. He said, Jesus is a saviour not just to forgive us, but to save us from sinning. He's a saviour not just to forgive us, but to save us from sinning. See, the corrupt teaching in Crete had no gospel. Where Titus was working, there was no gospel, there was no good news, there was no saviour, there was no grace. And therefore, everyone was just left in their sins. False teaching just always leads people in their sins. It, but that isn't good news. It is not good news to be left in your sin. There's no hope, is there? If you think you're never going to change, you're never going to grow, there's no hope in that. But the grace of God is good news because it saves us from sinning. It teaches us and trains us to say no to ungodliness, we're told, and worldly passions. And it saves us for holiness. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In other words, the grace of God is changing us from and for. It doesn't just leave us where we are. It disciplines us. About a year ago, two years ago, I was driving, driving with my wife to Clapton-on-Sea. And uh, we were we're driving, drive, driving along, the, uh, along the road. And suddenly, my wife grabbed the steering wheel. And I just kind of didn't really know what was going on. And I had actually just become slightly distracted, was looking in the field. And I was basically driving the car towards a hedge. On a on a on an A road, it's my dangerous moment of my life, I think. And and thankfully, by God's grace, she was in the car and she grabbed the steering wheel and yanked me back onto the road. Don't drive with me. That's the that's the that's the conclusion of this story. Now, the point is, you see, that is a bit like the grace of God. 
You see, the grace of God grabs the steering wheel of our lives and we're driving off the edge into the abyss. And the grace of God grabs the steering wheel of our lives and sets us back on a new course. And you see, that grace that intervenes sometimes violently and in disturbing ways and in, in, and in uncomfortable ways does amazing things in us. See, God's loving, kind, gracious discipline of us is so good. God's grace isn't cuddly and warm and fuzzy. But it is very, very good and very, very loving. And it can be tough, absolutely. But it is for our good. You see, here in chapter 2, there are lots of commands. This is what we looked at last week. There are lots of commands. And we look through them, instruction on how to live. And there's lots of instruction in the Bible on how to live. But we can make a mistake. And the mistake is that we can think that simply knowing the commands of God is enough. If we just kind of read the Bible and we know... What it says, we'll just kind of go and do it. That Christian education is kind of enough. That no, knowledge is what I need, and that will do the job. But this passage here, you see, it shows us we need the grace of God to teach us and train us. Of course we need instruction. I'm not suggesting that we need less than that. Of course we need knowledge. Of course we want to be educated. Don't hear me being negative about the commands of God or the law of God. But it is not enough. Grace must work in, work in us and change us. And... The, the whole of the Old Testament teaches us this, that the people of Israel had the law of God, but it didn't change them. And what, what you see in the prophets is that again and again, prophets teach them you need God's grace to intervene in your life and rewire your heart, and then you start to obey. What we need, therefore, is a big view of what Jesus has done. It is not enough for us tonight simply to know what God requires of us. We must know what God has done for us. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to have a big view of God's generous, amazing love, his kind, loving grace. You need to know that your Father in heaven wants to pour good things into your life, more than 29 and 12 zeros. He wants to do more than that in your life. Because, you see, our problem when we disobey God is not simply that our willpower is weak or that we're not focused enough. The real issue is unbelief. I'm somehow suspecting God. I'm suspecting his good intentions for me. I'm suspecting that holiness will really ruin my life. I'm suspecting that his commands are really a horrible burden, constraining me, restricting me. I'm suspecting that he's trying to rob me of good things, that other things will get me. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a, a, a minister in a church, and, and um, on a Sunday he's, he's, he's uh, talking to one of the ladies in his congregation who's very poor. And the lady is telling the minister about, about her poverty and her problems. And the minister thinks, well, I should go and visit her during the week and bring her a gift to help her and support her. So during the week, he goes out on visitation and he goes to her house and he knocks on the door with a gift to give to her. There's no answer at the door. He knocks again, no answer. Knocks again, no answer. And, and he knows the lady is at home and he's mystified by that. But, um, but he, he, go, he goes, goes back home and, and on the following Sunday, he sees the lady in the congregation, this poor lady, and so he goes up to her and he, and he says, look, I have this money, this gift. I came and knocked on your door to give you this gift. And she said, oh, she said, I was at home and I heard you knocking, but I thought it was the bailiffs come to take away all my possessions. See, the grace of God came to her, but she didn't know that it was the grace of God. And somehow, somehow we can think in similar ways. The grace of God comes to our life and we think, no, he's coming to take stuff away, to rob us. It's, God is like a bailiff. He's going to empty my life. But we're told here 
that the grace of God has appeared. His, his will for you really is good, and he really wants to bless you. We live in the light of his grace. Secondly, we live in the light of the glory of God in the future. Now you'll notice in these verses that the word appear comes twice. So in verse 11, we read of how the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then in verse 13, we read about the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in verse 11, we get the grace of God in the past, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And verse 13, the glory of Jesus Christ coming in the future. Grace in the past, glory in the future. There are many famous dates in history, aren't there? 1066, 911, 77, many famous dates. But here we've got the two most famous dates of all. The date of Jesus Christ's death and the date of his return. And as Christians, we are living between these two days. We are living between grace and glory. And we might be tempted the two most important days in our lives, the days we're born and the days we die, but actually they're not. The two most important days in our lives are the day when Jesus died for us and the day when he's returning. We've been caught up into something much bigger than just us, our small little puny lives. We've been caught up into a big, a massive story. You know, all great stories are about an insignificant person that gets caught up into something much bigger and is transformed and changed by it. Think of uh, the Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, getting caught up in an, in an adventure, transforms him and changes him. Frodo in Lord of the Rings, Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars films. See, we're not just little hobbits running around on Earth anymore. You've been caught up in something big, massive, a great adventure, and you, your life is now bookended in two places, the grace of God and the glory of God. And here in verse 13, we read of how Jesus is coming back. Our world is not right now, is it? Just uh, about a month ago, a guy was stabbed just right outside our church. One of the guys in our church was stood by him while he's bleeding, his guts quite literally hanging out, and he, one of the guys in our church was stood by him praying with him. Our world is not right, is it? That's why there's abuse. That's why there's children in homes. That's why there, there are gang rapes on buses in India. That's why there are Catholic cardinals abusing power. That's why you're battling with anxiety today. That's why we struggle with our families. There are so many problems, but a day is coming. A day is coming, and Jesus will come in glory, and he will put everything to rights, and he really will come. And we need to be very careful we don't lose sight of this day. We can do in, in, in our churches because we're, we're slightly worried about some of the more wacky, uh, esoteric groups that speculate uh, on the return of Jesus. But this hope is so key, and it's everywhere in the, in the New Testament. It's stamped everywhere. We mustn't lose lose a side of this. We're living in the light of the glory of that day when Jesus Christ will return. And we're told in verse 12 that we're living in this present age, in this world now, verse 13, we're waiting, and this is our blessed hope. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus. Verse 13, we're told he's divine. That's one of the most explicit verses, by the way, in the New Testament, in the New Testament on the divinity of Jesus. And he's a saviour. And in verse 14, we're told he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What do we see here? We see that Jesus died 2,000 years ago for us, but he is coming back. And they are, it is the same Jesus who's coming back. Grace and glory go together. The Jesus who's returning is the Jesus who died for you. And so we see here that the point of the cross is 
was for Jesus to buy you for himself and for holiness. You belong to him. You, he has a stamp of ownership on you now. And your transformation, your purity, your holiness, all these things, they have been bought by Jesus. You know, different, you, know, you know the difference between wishing for something and buying something. You know, you, you go down to uh, Westfield or you go on the internet and you surf when you look at all this stuff and you think, oh, it'd be nice to have this. It'd be, be good to, to have that in my home. I'd love to have that picture and that sofa and that telly. But you don't, you don't have it unless you buy it, do you? Once you buy it, it is yours. And you look at it and you say, oh, that would be nice. It's window shopping. You wish for it. But it's not yours until you buy it. Now tonight, Jesus is not wishing for your purification. He's not banking on your efforts. He's not hoping that we'll pull through. He's not spurring us on like a sports coach, saying, God, just try your hardest. He's not wishing that we would pull our socks up. Jesus has bought you. And he's bought these things. And he's, and he's bought them with his death. And they belong to him and we belong to him. That's a massive encouragement. Let's be encouraged by this. You see, all the spiritual battles in your life, now think of those, the things... And maybe you feel you want to give up. You started to think, I'm never really going to change. This is just the way it is. My habits are never going to change. But let me say to you tonight, on the authority of the Word of God, whatever battles you face, whatever struggles you face, and I'm, I'm not wanting to be simplistic or superficial about those battles, Jesus has paid for your holiness. He's bought it. And your future, it is purity and it is spiritual freedom. He did not die for nothing. And he's not banking on our willpower and resolve. Your willpower and resolve might feel very weak, but the cross isn't weak. Jesus did not die in vain. He has bought you. And he's bought you for holiness, and he'll get you there. Let's be encouraged by this. But let's also be challenged by it as well. Because we need to know as well that we are not our own anymore. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And he's coming back and he's going to claim his own for himself. Now maybe this seems a little bit intense and a little bit over the top for you. And all you want to do is just kind of come to church on Sunday, have a bit of cake and coffee and chat to a few people. And, you know, you just want to do your own thing the rest of the week. But let, let me just say to you, if that, is your, if that is your agenda, you need to see that you've really misunderstood the cross. Because Jesus died for your purity. He's bought you. He's not just bought a possibility. Or he, he's bought you. And that's where we're heading. See, when you go off to your annual trip to Benidorm, and I'm sure you all go off to Benidorm every year, you go off to your charter trip to Benidorm, what do you pack? What do you put in your suitcase? Do you pick out your welly boots and your knitted scarf from Auntie Mabel? Do you change your money into US dollars and pack your favorite Russian dictionary? Of course you don't. Because you're intelligent people. You prepare for the future. You plan ahead. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? But do we honestly think that we're taking our lust with us into glory? Are we packing that? Why then would we give ourselves to impurity? Why would we do that? We're not taking it with us. Do I honestly think that I'm going to be allowed to keep my bad temper and my impatience? Why would I live in an atmosphere that, that's the opposite of where I'm going? Are you packing your sin in your rucksack, hoping to take it with you to Jesus, hoping it will slip past the heavenly security check? Why would we want that? Why would we want that? Jesus has bought us for something amazing. He set us free. And so let's, let's put our sin in the bin. Let's throw it away. 
Let's leave it behind. You won't need it where you're going. We live in the light of his coming, and that changes everything about how we live. So we live our lives today between grace and glory. We all do that. We live out of that. We live out of that grace in the past and the glory of the future. And it's teaching us, it's training us to live a new life. And it says in verse 15, look with me at verse 15, will you? These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now this verse has told me what to do tonight as a teacher, as a, as a preacher. I'm to teach these things to you and I'm told to encourage you, to rebuke you and to not let anyone despise or disregard this teaching. So let me say this to you. Don't despise or disregard this teaching here in chapter 2. Let this hit the particulars of your life. Don't just, leave, let, don't, don't just leave it hanging in the air. Bring this to God tonight and let his word do his work in you. May I challenge you on the basis of verse 15. Don't bury this chapter. Don't ignore the grace of God. Don't put what God said to you here to the back of your head. Listen to him. Don't disregard it. Don't be overwhelmed with discouragement. But be encouraged. Take yourself in hand. Let grace train you and teach you. Jesus Christ has bought you for himself. And he's coming back to claim you. Glory is coming. Let's pray. Oh, living God, we come to you tonight as a saviour. You have become our saviour. You have done everything. And we praise you, our living God, because you are enough for us. Your grace has appeared and your glory is coming. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when we will see you. You who have died to buy us for yourself. And what an amazing day that will be, Lord Jesus, when we see you and we stand before you and we fall before you. And finally, all sin will be taken away in our lives. But Lord Jesus, as we as we run towards that day, as we see that day coming, we, we ask, please purify us now. You've bought our sanctification. You've bought our holiness. You've bought our transformation. Let us be changed, we pray, by all that you've done at the cross and by the hope of the glory in the future. Amen.